listening to Now I've Heard Everything, conversations with the icons of our time. There was some interest in publishing houses, but they wanted to tone my writing down. They wanted me to write something completely different. But I write erotica for everybody because sex is universal. Author Zane. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. As the saying goes, sex sells. And books about sex can sell particularly well, if well written. And in the early 2000s, a powerful new voice in erotica emerged and dominated the bestseller lists. She wrote under the pseudonym Zane. Her erotic short stories attracted a loyal following on the internet and soon inspired her to self-publish The Sex Chronicles. And it was not long after that, she got a book contract from Simon & Schuster. I met Zane in 2004, right about the time her novel Nervous came out. And as you're about to hear, this soft-spoken daughter of a theologian had a lot to say about writing and erotica and the publishing world. So here now from 2004, Zane. Part of your great success story is that you initially were self-published. Yes, I was. I originally self-published my first three books. And you are now, correct me if I'm wrong, you are, you are up for an award as the, the breakout author of the year? or, or yes. Did I get that right? Yes. Bless your heart. <laughs> <laughs> and Nervous also won a couple of awards early this year. It won the Black Expressions Book of the Year and also the Blackboard Book of the Year for Fiction. Now, now please, set modesty aside for a moment. Does that surprise you? Uh, yes, it does. Clouds, simply because of the kind of uh, writing that I do, I never really expected to get that kind of recognition. But I'm very flattered. Nervous actually began as a short story, did it not? Yes, it did, in the Sex Chronicles Shattering the Myth. And, yes. But these characters, I guess, were so compelling, not only to you, but to the readers, that you couldn't mm -hmm. just leave it with a short story. Well, I was very fascinated about a story about a woman who uh, is very nervous around men. She blacks out all the time. But at the same time, she has this alternate personality who is the complete opposite, a, a horror mind, mm. <laughs> basically. Yeah. And, and this is, I gather, sadly, not that unusual. No, it's not. No, she has multiple personality disorder, which is very common. So this is not just, I mean, people who, seriously, it occurred to me, people who only mm -hmm. read maybe the first three pages, the first mm -hmm. four pages, and they're standing in the bookstore, they're saying, wow, there's a lot of gratuitous sex in here. But then right. as you begin to get into the story, then you realize, especially as we see the early episodes in John's life, right. uh, there's there's some real history going on here. Yeah, it is. The alternate first appeared to be her protector when she was younger, when she was getting teased and harassed and that kind of thing. That's how the alternate first came about. I guess using today's psychology mm -hmm. would say, oh, shouldn't we get this little girl into some help, get her into some program or something? Right. That doesn't always happen. No, it doesn't. That's what happens with the character with this book. She, Her father at a young age wants her to get help, but her mother says there's nothing wrong with her. And so for years until she's grown, she finally goes to get help on her own. But she should have had it a long time ago. But I gather that many of your readers who are, if I may use mm -hmm. the word, perfectly normal, mm -hmm still see some little piece of themselves in these characters. Well, a lot of women, they feel like it's almost two sides of them, the conservative shy side and then the wild side. But a lot of them don't let the wild side come out at all. Mm -hmm. Why is it that maybe men are more comfortable letting a wild side come out than women are? Because society, I feel society accepts it more, quite honestly. So men, <laughs> men can go and have flings and mm -hmm. just... 
try new things. Exactly. Try but, but if a woman brings that up, that's somehow forbidden. Exactly. Exactly. At least until we read the pages of your book. <laughs> yeah, now it's not forbidden respect. anymore. Uh, but uh, you, you have, you have a, a vivid imagination. Yes, I've always had that. <laughs> <laughs> when did you know you were a good writer? Well, I've always been a writer, so to speak, and all of my teachers always told me to be a writer, but I didn't start writing actually until I got really, really bored one day. And I didn't have anything else to do, so I wrote, and I've been doing it ever since. <laughs> and, and, you know, quite honestly, I wish I had done it back then because it's a perfect job for me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's just you, you seem to have found your passion. Oh, yeah. Definitely my passion. But again, as we said at the outset, this didn't start with you winning a major book publishing contract from right. one of the big houses. Mm-hmm. You, had, you, you started basically small. Yeah, but when I, by the time I had self-published my first book, I had a large readership over mm-hmm. the Internet, which is why they sold so well, self-published. <laughs> it started with a few emails? Yes, with emails <laughs> and then a huge mailing list. And then, so by the time I put the Sex Chronicles out, it sold 108,000 copies self-published. Oh, jeez. Yeah. And quite honestly, there was some interest in publishing houses, but they wanted to tone my writing down. They wanted me to write something completely different. But I felt I knew that there was a need or a want for this because of all the emails and stuff that I got. So I pretty much just stuck to my guns. <laughs> and that has served you well. Yes, it has. <laughs> I, I, mean, I mean, you seem to have quite a bit of success writing just the way you want to write. Yeah, well, I've done eight books in a little over three years, and six of them have been New York Times bestsellers. And I'm already published in uh, Japanese, Danish, and Greek. So, yeah, it's going well. Oh, I, I wanted to ask you, there was, there was, you, you, you've seen it, I'm sure, a couple of weeks ago, the, the New York Daily News article mm-hmm. that referred to you. I want to see if you think this is accurate. They called you the queen of African-American erotica. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I've been labeled, yes. <laughs> you, is that accurate, you think? I agree with that, yeah. But I write erotica for everybody because sex is universal. I, yeah, so I, I do have a big crossover audience as well but the thing of it is i think a lot of people maybe a lot of men especially think Mm -hmm. of erotica as letters to penthouse right but your book is we have real three-dimensional well-rounded characters this is not just one sex scene after another broken up by a little bit of you know a business i mean this is this is a character study we're talking about yes it is and that's my favorite part of writing books i love creating the characters and making them, having them have depth and that kind of thing, instead of just writing about sex. Yeah, explaining why they do what mm-hmm. they do. Exactly. <laughs> you have to know these people really well, don't you? Yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> do you think about them in your head and, and kind of form like like little mental biographies of them before you begin writing? Yes, absolutely. So mm-hmm. their, their character traits, their occupation, their ages, what they look like, um, their, you know, their faults. Like in the book I'm writing now, the main character is real clumsy. You know, those kind of things. Uh, sayings they may repeat and all of that. Yeah, I think it out very clearly. So that, now, do you leave yourself room to be a little surprised by something that they do or something yes. that they say? Or, yes. or can you mm-hmm. can you be writing along and realize, oh, my gosh, I didn't realize they moved to Tanz- Tanzania when they were in the fourth grade or something? <laughs> yeah, a lot of times once I build the characters, the characters do kind of lead guys' the story themselves. The most important part to me is the development of the actual characters. And keeping focused on what their motivations are. Exactly. So does that mean you know how the book is going to end when you start writing? Not always, no. Actually, most of the time I don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, then, well, with eight books in three years, that means that's that's left a lot of surprises for you. Yes, it has. <laughs> <laughs> Do you get excited when you start writing? I know we, you know, we get excited when you start reading mm-hmm. a book like this one. Or, oh, where she's going to go with this? Do oh yeah, you... I'm very excited when I write because it's like I, I'm playing out a movie in my head, so to speak. 
So that's when I'm most, I won't say free, but when I'm has the least stress in my life is when I'm writing. It's kind of like my escape. <laughs> Yet this is a pseudonym for you. Yes. You it, are you are you not comfortable with telling people who, what your real identity is? You're <laughs> shedding those those glasses and the cape and the mm-hmm. things like that and turning into Clark Kent or whatever. The I'm mixing my metaphors. Well, very I'm badly sure my here. full name will originally, you know, ultimately come out. But right now, I just prefer the privacy, that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I guess your family is just kind of ambivalent about this. Yeah, well, actually, my parents didn't know I had a book out until I had three out. So <laughs> that's originally why I started using a pseudonym and no picture on the book, that kind of thing. Because I didn't have the benefit that other authors have of having their family and friends and coworkers help them sell books. All of mine was really from word of mouth over the Internet. And a couple of million sales. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a lot of word of mouth. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> I mean, did you did you ever anticipate that you would be this this hot publishing phenomenon? No. What an incredible story. (laughs) After this short break, Zane talks about research, her characters, and her own publishing house. Start your day with Now I've Heard Everything. We post new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 5 o'clock a.m. Eastern Time. Subscribe now so you'll have something fresh to listen to and get your day going. back to my 2004 conversation with Zane. And now you have your own publishing house. Yes, I do. I run Straight World Books International, and I have 34 authors signed to me. And we publish between 20 to 28 books a year. What a success story you have. (laughs) I mean, this must be very fulfilling for you, rewarding. I mean, it'd be great enough just Mm -hmm. to have all your own books Mm -hmm. be bestsellers, but now to know that you're helping dozens of other people oh, great. achieve me, their dreams too yeah and for me publishing serves a much deeper purpose because i'm able to get a diversity of books out there as opposed to just one kind which is the kind that i write and so we have everything from historical fiction to science fiction contemporary romance mystery thrillers we publish the whole nine yards and perhaps to treat authors in a way that you haven't always been treated by exactly. the big publishing houses that's true that too, because I know that the authors out there that take risks just like I do, and those are the authors that I like to publish, the ones that might not fit into that traditional box that the publishing houses have developed. Because the publishing houses, the people who control the houses, probably have the same cultural biases and stereotypes that readers often have. Right, just like in the beginning, none of them thought anyone would read Addicted. Now Addicted has been out and has sold over 400,000 copies, and now they're putting it out in hardcover (laughs) because it's selling so well. But that was originally the book that no one, none of the publishers thought anyone would want to read. So now Nervous is the second in a series of five? Yes, it's Addicted, Nervous, Vengeance, Torn, and Patience. And the common character is the psychiatrist, Dr. Marcella Spencer. The main character will always change and increasingly get more complex. So, do you, so now you have, I, I gather pretty clearly in mind, where the arc of the story, story is going to take us over those five books. Yes. Well, I'm working on Vengeance now. Uh, and uh, it's a very interesting storyline. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm picturing that you, you just can't wait to get back to the keyboard and start writing some more. <laughs> Oh, I love it. Yeah, I love it. I love it. But I had to take time out for life and kids and family and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, you you sound like you're very balanced in your life. Yeah, I try to be. And you you are one of the most unassuming best-selling authors I've ever met. <laughs> That's what a lot of people say. <laughs> well, but I, I suppose the mm-hmm. the relative anonymity that you have mm-hmm. helps. You know, I mean, you know, you know, like Patsy Cornwell going on with a, a phalanx of bodyguards and things right, like that. Right. Right. 
You know, probably mm-hmm. you probably don't even own a limousine. No. <laughs> <laughs> No, no limo. <laughs> well, let me let me return to to nervous for a moment because mm-hmm. you did some very careful research into mm-hmm. what kinds of conditions could cause somebody to to develop multiple personality right. disorder. What mm-hmm. what's at the root of all that? And and mm-hmm. you, you've you've very carefully researched the medical aspects of this. I yes, gather. Yes, I did. And actually, one of my best friends is actually is a psychiatrist. Mm. So, and I do, I talked to more than one psychiatrist about it and do research on my own. When you look back on your own school years, mm-hmm. do you think you may have known somebody back then who had multiple personality disorder and you didn't know it then, but you know it now looking back? It's a good possibility, yes. Definitely. Because I can think of people when I went mm-hmm. to school with that seemed to be two different people on different days. I think I definitely knew at least one. <laughs> and you know, well, Given mm-hmm. what the root causes of it are, mm-hmm. as we find out in this mm-hmm. book, there should be probably a lot of people. And I was really shocked when I got ready to write Nervous. I went on the internet and put in, you know, uh, multiple personalities, and tens of thousands of websites came up. And a lot of them were individual websites from people telling their stories. And it really surprised me. I knew it was not, you know, I knew it wasn't a common problem, but I didn't expect it to have. I was really shocked that so many people have it. I, there are varying degrees of it, I guess. Yeah, varying you know, where, degrees of it, yeah. Where some people have it. I mean, certainly in this case where we have, you know, John and Jude seem to be mm-hmm. completely opposite sides of the same right. coin. Right, And there there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of interaction between these two personalities. Right, exactly. Yeah. Well, what is the alternates are always aware of what the the central person is, but mm-hmm. the central person is not aware of what the alternates are doing. So like a Chinese wall between right. them. Right, so John is the main person. So Jude is always aware of everything John is doing, but John, of course, has no idea what Jude is doing. Jude's very angry yes she's angry well her whole thing is that she first came about to protect john and now that john has gotten older and gone to seek help jude's whole philosophy is if somebody's going somewhere it's not going to be her (laughs) so the book is told from both of their perspectives and it increasingly gets more intense as it goes along as both of them start fighting to be the one to survive but it's you know it's interesting because they're the same person but Mm -hmm. it's two different people and i did it in a way at least i tried to and a lot of people have told me this where they get to the point where they kind of like jude and it's almost, it's, you know, it was a challenge to me to write about two characters and have people be concerned about both of them and really not either one of them to, to leave. But one of them has to, so. <laughs> yeah. Well, she could come back some other book, couldn't she? <laughs> Anything could happen. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the beauty of writing a book. Yeah, you can, you can, you can do pretty much whatever you want to do, can't mm-hmm. you? The characters do whatever I want them to do, and that's what I love about it. <laughs> <laughs> let, let me ask you something else that people may find, some people may find difficult to reconcile mm-hmm. your religious faith mm-hmm. with the sexual explicitness of, mm-hmm. of what you write. Mm-hmm. These these are not incompatible, I gather, are they? No, I mean, I don't think I've ever met anybody that got here on earth, you know, got here from any other act other than sex. <laughs> now, my father's a theologian, but I know that I'm here because my parents had sex. So sex is a very natural thing. And there's no reason why people shouldn't talk openly about it. And I think that's part of the problem, that there's a lack of communication. Men tend to always be open about what they would desire sexually, but women a lot of times feel that they can't do that. And the reason, a lot of reason, is because they have a fear of being judged. And again, back to the double standard, if a man brags that he's slept with, you know, however many women, it's considered cool or okay or acceptable. But if a woman says a certain number, then she's automatically labeled, you know, a whore. And often men will say that they want an uninhibited woman, but when they find one, they spend more time worried about how she learned to do certain things or who else she's done it with. 
Yeah, so that's that's a reason why a lot of women are very quiet about their personal desires. And are there people who figure that if you are a person of deep religious faith, you shouldn't be enjoying sex? I think a lot of people feel that. And, you know, in fact, I was having a discussion with one of my friends where she was saying she's single. And she was saying that a lot of married women in her church tell her she should be celibate until she becomes married. And my whole thing is it's easy for them to say that because they have someone, you know, to hold them and comfort them and be with them every night. Yeah. So they can't really determine that. Everybody has to make that determination for themselves. You love your characters, don't you? Yeah, I did. <laughs> I've always been good at daydreaming, though. So they're almost like, you know, yeah, people that are in my head. I'm not crazy, though, but <laughs> I've always been good at, you know, daydreaming and imagining different things. Yeah. Zane, real name Christina Roberts, is about 57 now. Now, she publishes Straybor Books which is an imprint of Simon & Schuster and publishes as many as several dozen authors a year. Now you can get a copy of Nervous by Zane by tapping on the link in our show notes or by going to our website, heardeverything.com. We may earn an Amazon commission if you make a purchase. And while you're at heardeverything.com, don't miss my 1999 interview with Sister Soldier. And I've dedicated my life primarily to being able to help African people to get in control of their lives, their political lives, their economic lives, their social and spiritual lives. And my 1999 conversation with Bell Hooks. If Bell Hooks were writing 16 frivolous novels, I don't think anyone would care. But when you write the kind of books that people tell you, this book changed my life. Those books, I think, are often perceived as a threat. And of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us everywhere you listen to podcasts. And thank you so much for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, to mark the 60th, 60th anniversary of the very first Beatles concert in the U.S., we'll revisit my 2014 interview with the American journalist who probably knew them better than anybody in those days, Larry Kane. In those days, in the aftermath of the assassination of the president, it was big, it was huge, it was giant. I mean, there wasn't anything mega like it before, but nobody really knew they would become the icons they've become today. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Thompson.